0: a few announcements before we get started. One is um, we are planning to go to India this year in October. If you're interested in finding out more about that, uh, even if you don't think that you could do it with the cost um, or some other hang-up, maybe just find out some more information before you you uh, write it off. Uh, So I have some handouts for those. The, The registration is due February 23rd so that's two weeks from today along with a $100 deposit, and uh, I, I'd love to talk to you more about that. Uh, secondly, uh, the refreshments that you're enjoying this morning are um, are done by people who are just volunteering to, to do that. This morning it was uh, Jonathan and Sandra. I think Jonathan, did you make those? Okay. <laughs> I'm teasing. I, I kind of figured that was Sandra. Thank you for that. Uh, but but there is a sign-up sheet out on the, the table in the foyer if you would like to help in that way and just provide refreshments uh basically just have to provide some sort of um of a baked good of some kind of coffee and Bill's always bringing donuts for us so um those are those are all set. All right, so if you'd like to sign up for that, there's a sign up sheet out there and then uh Jennifer asked me to to re- to uh let you know that her mom is having surgery on Friday for a uh problem that she's been having and and uh she would appreciate your prayers. All right, well let's uh take a look at our um material for this morning, which is on uh, taking the gospel to all the nations. And we want to uh continue our study here on on missions. And so far we've seen from scripture that the underlying foundation of missions, the purpose of it, the the goal of it is God's passion to see his name glorified. Because God is passionate about making his name known in all the nations, he Puts us on a mission, and uh, the primary way in which he glorifies himself is by showing mercy to sinners. And we also saw that the the that this task is one that is uh, particularly urgent because no one can come to faith in Christ. God's mercy can't be seen in a person coming to himself apart from a conscious faith on their part. That is, they have to recognize. That, that, um, that Jesus Christ is the one who saves. And the only way that that can happen is if someone tells them. Uh, how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without a proclaimer, someone to to explain the truth of the gospel to them? So that makes missions urgent. It can't, we can't just kind of be passive in this and just say, well, someone else is going to do it. God's going to miraculously do it somehow. God will build his church, but he does it through people. Two weeks ago, we began to think about the question of how to um, go about the task of reaching others and, uh, with the gospel. And we discussed the various ways that we can engage in cross-cultural evangelism. Um, and last week, we talked about the roles of suffering and, and prayer in missions. So before we get started today, I want to ask you a question, then we'll pray, and, and we'll get into today's material. Can someone help uh, the class and just... Uh, remind us what 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 is a missionary? What's the difference between a missionary and a pastor? What makes a missionary a missionary? Paul? Okay. Okay. Okay, good. So, it's someone who crosses a cultural boundary in order to bring the gospel to a people um that doesn't have it. Now, uh that that means that that uh, you and I are not missionaries in that sense. Now, we we are in, in some sense that we're supposed to be taking the gospel to the people around us. We need to be evangelizing. But I think that's different than what a missionary is. Again, missionary is not in the scripture. So we're, this is just something that that, the, that we talk about when we talk about reaching people for the sake of Christ. And I would say one step further is that that it actually is f- with the express purpose of planting churches. Okay, taking the gospel and planting churches, because there are lots of ways that we can take the gospel uh, to people, but if we don't have the final goal of planting churches, I think, um, not that they're not a missionary, but but not at the core of what Jesus is calling us to do. We'll, we'll look at that here today when we get back to Matthew 28. Let's pray, and we'll uh, begin into the material. Lord, thank you for the fact that you sent people across cultures to come to us to share the gospel with us, and Many of us heard it from people within our own cultural boundaries, uh, family, friends, but it had to come to us as Americans first before it could get to people in our family and and our friends. And so we're grateful that that your gospel spreads to the uttermost parts of the earth, and we want to see it spread to other parts uh, of the earth as well. And so we pray that you would help us think rightly about missions and our responsibility as senders and then... and then also as goers. uh, We pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. This week we want to think more about uh, this question, but specifically in terms of going overseas. Does does God have a plan for this missionary task to go overseas? And and can we know it? Um, And so we want to consider these uh, together. So let's think about an illustration of of two sinking ships that are pretty far apart. And they have each on each ship an equal amount of people. And um, and you are in charge of a team of rescuers with two boats to try to rescue as many people as possible. Now, which, which ship do you go to? Do you go to the one that's nearest to you, or do you go to the one that's farthest away? Logic says what? Take the one that's nearest. What happens if you end up going to the one that's farther away? Okay, more people are going to die because just for for sake of time, um, you you have a better chance at rescuing more people if you um, if you get the ones that are nearest to you. Uh, you have limited time, limited resources, and so if you focus all of your efforts on the ship closest to you, you're you're more likely to save them from drowning than you would if you went off to the far uh, sinking ship. So if we thought about it in those terms, uh, with regard to missions. Is that legitimate? I mean, is it legitimate to think of missions in that way that, you know, we have just as many people sinking, so to speak, in our area as we do around the world, and so wouldn't we be better off focusing our efforts on people closest to us? Or would we be better off, you know, let's say that we don't consider a sinking ship near us. Let's say we look at other countries and we say, well, which one is is easier to reach? Which one is easier to rescue? Is that how we ought to look at missions? When we, ask it, when we ask if it's possible to know God's plan for his missionary enterprises, it is probably helpful to start by saying what we do not mean by asking the question. We do not mean uh, to imply that there is a specific, detailed plan. God doesn't say which part of the region to go to. Now, obviously, for the disciples in Acts 1, he says go to Jerusalem and then Judea, Judea and Samaria, the outer region of that, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. But as far as which parts, you know, you follow the, the, the path of Paul and you find that he had intentions to go to various places and, and God prevented him in many cases. And so there's not really a clear explanation or detailed plan of, okay, us in the 21st century, we in the 21st century, we have this specific responsibility to go to this specific people group. Um, God certainly has a plan, and He does have details in his plan, but he hasn't revealed those to us turn to matthew twenty eight because we can know at least a part of this plan and the overall purpose in it matthew twenty eight okay, and we find ourselves coming back to this passage because it is so central to our responsibility as a church in this age that Christ has given us a, <coughs> a commission. I want someone to read verses 18 through 20. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go so therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. And you. All right. Uh, there are several things that we could say about this passage. First of all, we need to recognize that this is not meant for the disciples alone or the apostles alone, and then we, the reason we know that is because of the last verse: "I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Well, the disciples aren't going to last till the end of the age; they only last for one generation and then they die. So, this is meant for more than just the disciples. It's meant for, we could say, all of Christ's disciples. And then the second thing we we ought to recognize, I. I try to remind us of this every time we see this passage, and that is that Christ is with us. That we don't go alone. No matter what kind of responsibility we see for ourselves to reach people in our area or around the world, that Christ is with us always, even to the end. He's not going to leave us. And the reason that we know that He's going to make worshipers is because all authority has been given from heaven and earth. It's all all been given to Him. And so He can take that authority. In other words... Christ has this blanket of authority over the entire universe, right? And so he can tell tell us, go to that place, and I'm going to make worshipers for myself. This is why you can make disciples of all nations, because I have authority over all things. See, he's just like a king who has an authority over a land, and he says, go to this specific, and this is why there's going to be change there, because I have authority over the whole land. So go and, and, um, and tell them. All right, but we want to see uh, several things. With regard to reaching the nations, okay. First is, notice, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. So God would have us go all over the world, not just where we believe that we can achieve the maximum, uh, the, the ma- maximum results, the maximum effective results. And we see some of this in the apostles' uh, journey, the apostle Paul specifically. Paul's ambition in Romans 15 is that he would preach the gospel where Christ was not known and that he would not be a build, building on someone else's foundation. So Paul has this desire to go to places, we could, what we call today, unreached peoples. He wants to go where the gospel is not known. Secondly, not only is it to all the nations, um, and we should go, but also we should make disciples of these nations. We'll talk about this more in, in a second. And finally, notice that we can go with the assurance of Christ's work being accomplished. I already mentioned that. Christ lays claims uh through the authority that he has um and because of that authority, we can be confident that, that there will be the proper results. Isaiah 55, you know, God's word will never return without accomplishing what God had intended it to do. Right? So, even in uh, the rejection of the gospel that we take to people, uh we can be we can be sure that, that God will accomplish what He wanted to with His Word. Alright? So, um, so, if God's going to do this, if God has authority, God has given authority to Christ, basically, over all the earth, and the task is to make disciples of all nations, then can't we just end the class right now? Because we have, whatever it is, 200 and some nations in the world right now, and there has been a gospel witness, and I would say that there probably is a gospel witness in every single nation. So can't we just kind of end the clash right now and, and be done? Even nations that are opposed to religious freedom, like Saudi Arabia, have underground churches, right? So can't we just kind of end it because we're supposed to take the gospel to all the nations? Well, the gospel's been taken to all the nations, and we can be done. Yeah, despite this... Um, Christians are still sending missionaries to various parts of the world, and they're talking about the Great Commission and reaching unreached peoples, and uh, particularly Christians are even sending missionaries to difficult places. Okay, Think back to the original illustration that you know we tend to focus on the ones that are easier. Why would we ever send someone out to that other sinking ship if that nation, so to speak, has already been Rescued in a way, or, or has at least sent a rescuer. Why would we go there where it's more dangerous and likely we're not going to see as many results? Um, and uh, I think that comes down to the, the the understanding or our understanding of the word nation, and that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about what what does the scripture mean when it's talking about nation. Here's what John Piper says in this book that we're uh, I'm drawing much of this from. Let the nations be glad. He says, God's call for missions in Scripture cannot be defined in terms of crossing cultures to maximize the total number of individuals saved. Rather, God's will for missions is that every people group be reached with the testimony of Christ and that a people be called out for his name from all the nations. So what he's suggesting there is that there's a difference between a nation and a people group. Okay, So just think of it this way. Are there various people groups within the nation of India? Right? Are there various people groups within the nation of China? Are there various people groups within the nation of of America, right? So, so what he's suggesting is that when the nations is referred to in scriptures, often referred to with regard to the people groups. In fact, if you think about it, would they have been thinking, would the readers, the original writers and readers of scripture, been thinking about nations the way that we think about nations, you know, with each one with the flag. Uh or or would they have thought about them differently, like a different culture? And we're gonna talk about what that that means here in just a second. Right. And we're gonna get to that in Revelation five, where every you know, there are going to be worshipers of Christ in heaven from every People, tribe, tongue, and nation. And, um, and so those seem to be some sort of synonyms that kind of pile on top of each other. So is this a biblical way to think about the work of missions? Should we think about missions more at like people groups rather than nations? And, and uh, I would say both no and yes. That is no in, in that if you don't understand nations to mean people groups, it uh, doesn't mean that, that you're living in sin or that you're not actually doing work of missions. A missionary could go out, not understand this um, according to what I'm suggesting here, and, um, and still be a proper missionary. So in one sense, no, uh, we don't have to think about missions in terms of people groups. But in another sense, the concept seems to be biblical. It seems to be from the Scriptures, and it seems to be very significant for our day. All right. So thinking back to Matthew 28 again about the Great Commission, Christ has commanded, commanded his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. And, and when we think of it, we think of like nations that are, that are in the Olympics, for example. You have Russia and Germany and so on. But that's not the word that's used here. The, 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 the word that's used here is the Greek word that, that is transliterated as ethnos, the word from which we get ethnic, so ethnic group. Um, so, so nation can be more accurately described as an ethnic group or an ethnic linguistic group. And, um, and so the fact that Jesus says, notice verse 19 again, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all the ethnic groups suggests that this is more than just going to, um, a place where a group of people have their own flag. It's more than that. And, um. So we could spend a lot of time in in just looking at some passages of Scripture. Um, For example, in in the Old Testament, Psalm 96.3, Declare His glory among the nations and His marvelous works among all peoples. So we have the nations and peoples seem to be used synonymously there. Um, and, um, And probably the most significant one is in Genesis chapter 12. Why don't we turn there, Genesis chapter 12. And here we have a promise to Abraham, famous uh, Abrahamic covenant that's given, both in chapter 12 and, and reaffirmed in chapter 15. But here God makes a promise to Abraham about what kind of blessing is going to come to his descendants. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, other translations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. In the New Testament, when Paul is quoting from this passage, he says, all the nations will be blessed. Okay, so when when Paul's quoting from Genesis 12, if he would have used the exact word, he would have said something like families or ethnic group, but instead he says nations. So is Paul going against what God was promising to to, uh, Abram in Genesis? No, instead I think what he's doing is he's using a synonymous word, a word that is Synonymous with families or or ethnic groups. Now, certainly, I don't think that God intended that that uh, here in this promise that it was you know a family like father, mother, children, that sort of thing, but rather families in a broader sense, like w- what we're talking about in people groups and ethnic groups. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter five because here's the I think what Jonathan was alluding to earlier, Revelation 5. So we have, at the beginning of the text of Scripture, we have a promise to Abraham about all the nations, all the peoples of the earth being blessed. And then in Revelation, the end of the Bible, we have a promise that there will be singing from these nations to the Lamb. So look at verse... Nine and would someone to read verses nine and ten. Okay, so the idea behind This is that in order for there to be praise in heaven from all of these various um, people, there needs to be the gospel reach these various tribes and tongues, languages, and people and nations. So it needs to be it it needs to reach them. So that's part of our missionary strategy to try to reach people who do not currently understand uh, that Christ is Lord and that he needs to be submitted to. Here we have these converts worshiping God, and they're clearly pictured within the, the kingdom of, that is full of the peoples of this world. In fact, that's what the millennial kingdom will be made of, of people from every nation. And um, so a people group then is – make sure I – I lost my uh, hand out here. One second. Make sure I fill in your blanks for you as we go. Do we have any? Oh, there's some on the back. Okay. All right, so what is a people group? What is a people group? Here's a definition from, um, from this missionary group that, that was um, thinking about this several decades ago. A significantly large group of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity for one another because of their shared language, religion, ethnicity, residence, occupation, class or state, situation, or a combination of these. Okay, so this is why I think uh, our definition of missionaries is helpful because it kind of dovetails with with this definition. That is that we could actually cross a culture uh, to a different people group even within our own state, right? Like Paul was mentioning last week, you could actually go to uh, Detroit and come across a different culture of people, right? People who have, in some cases, different language and definitely a different Cultural makeup, different understanding of uh, uh, worldviews, and so on. Uh, uh, maybe a common religion, and so on. So, so in in this book that that I've used um, in the past called Operation World, it lists it lists basically all the different countries of the world, and in each country, it gives you things that you ought to be praying for for these countries, and also statistics on what. Um, what is going on there with regard to the spread of the gospel. And in there, they f- they list several unreached people groups. That is where the gospel has not reached at all. And in, in in these, uh, here an example would be the Lampugnese people in Indonesia, the Hui and Hakka Chinese, the West Iranian peoples, the Azeri Turks, and the Bhutanese, among many others. Many of these fall within what... Um, missiologists, people who study missions for a living they call the ten forty window and um, basically it's that section uh from th- in the Middle East basically but it starts at in Africa and is um, it ranges all the way over to China there's a huge portion of that what they call ten forty window where there are s- there are loads of unreached people groups now there are some gospel witnesses within that that area but for the most part uh that is unreached. So, let's think now about who is reached and who is unreached, and then we'll start to to move towards our responsibility and wh- why does God do it do it this way? Any questions on what we've talked about so far? And a little bit more technical information, but I think it's kind of laying, helping us lay the foundation for what we want to get to, and that is that God is trying to call out a people for His namesake from every. People group, every ethnic group. All right, any questions, comments? All right, let's think about unreached versus reached people groups. Turn to Romans 15, because we could say that the city of Royal Oak is unreached. All right, we got the majority of people do not uh, accept the gospel. And we could probably say that the, the majority of people don't rightly understand the gospel. Uh, they don't even know who Jesus is. They don't know what he's done for them. And so we could say, well, then Royal Oak's and unreached people. We could go pretty much anywhere in the world and say that same thing about every city, every location in the world. So what is the difference between reached and unreached people? let well, someone read verses 18 through 21, Romans 15. Which one was that? You're gonna to have to repeat it. <laughs> I didn't. A Lyricum? Okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't notice. All right. The end of verse 19. Look what he says there, right after a Lyricum. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So, what do you think Paul means when he says I have fully preached the gospel of Christ? Do you think he means that every single person has heard the gospel and has had an opportunity to repent. What do you think he means? He means that he that knew, but not that. right, right. Paul saw his mission as proclaiming the gospel to those who had not heard. That's what we read about in verse twenty. I want to go where you know the, I'm not building on someone else's foundation. I feel my like my ministry that God has given me is to be what we would call a pioneer missionary. I'm going to a place where there are unreached peoples. But he said, in this area, I'm telling you that it's, I've already preached the gospel fully. And look at verse 23. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have for, had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. So here in verse 23 he says, there's no further place for me to go in these regions. Paul, not everybody has heard the gospel in these regions, have they? See, Paul seemed to to understand that a, that a place, a location had been reached when a church had been planted. John Piper uses the following definition of an unreached people group. A people group within which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians able to evangelize this people group. So in other words... An unreached people group is a place or, or an area in which there's no self-perpetuating church, that is, a reproductive church, a church that is able to make disciples of its own. Uh, so, so Paul's missionary uh, journey raises a question for us: Are frontier missions to unreached people groups the only biblical model for missions? Is that the only way that we ought to reach people is through frontier missionary work? Would, would we say that a missionary is wrong to go to a place where there's already a church established in that people group? Would they be wrong to do that? Okay. Would we be wrong to stay here and not do that? Okay. I'm trying to lead you here. And the answer is no, right? I think there are more, but Paul saw it as his personal goal, and I think there are people that God wires and directs in this way, that, that they just want to reach people who haven't been reached. But there is certainly a lot of work for others to do. In fact, Timothy and Titus are both models of men who were sent to work very purposely, not, not doing frontier work necessarily, but doing the work of an evangelist still. He had to come, and he was actually building on someone else's foundation, who's Paul's, right? And so even in those areas... Paul would say, those areas have already been reached. In a sense, there's no place for him to go, but Timothy and Titus still had work to do. And all these other pastors did too. And and believers alike. Uh, Paul left Titus in Crete to take care of unfinished business, and Timothy in Ephesus to watch out for false doctrines and so on. So it's, it wasn't enough to just go there and and establish a church. It was that people had to come behind him and and actually see that that um, continue. Alright, so does that make sense? The difference between um, reached and unreached people groups? Okay, we're trying to go. We, we want to see people that are in reached groups. We want to see them get the gospel. We want to see them have churches established in them. But we also want to see it in unreached places as well. Places that have not had um, you know the gospel explained to them. All right, so let me just say something about contextualization on the back of your handout, and then we'll see why God does this, does it this way. One of the buzzwords of missions work these days is contextualization. In fact, it's actually more than just missions. It's showing up in a lot of churches as well. And um, so I want to talk about this briefly just so that we have a balanced understanding, I think, of what it means because you'll probably hear this if you – if you come across any study on missions, you'll come across this. If you're pursuing missions for yourself, it is the idea of contextualization. All right, contextualization refers to the process of planning a church in a particular context that is faithful to and not importing unnecessary issues or ideas from another context. Okay, So let's think about this in terms of a continuum, a spectrum. C1, and this marker's not working very well, but just imagine it's up there, C1 to C5. Okay, so C1. Um, if you're planning a church among a Muslim, uh, a Muslim Central Asian people, would it be wise to insist that they have an Americanized church? So they sit on, they have to have pews, they have to have like our American pulpit they have to have um you know they they have to have all these uh uh the sound system just like we have it in the American churches and so on. Okay, that would be what what the, um, the missiologists refer to as the C1 uh side of contextualization where that we have to take an americanized form of christianity and force it onto another culture. Okay? Um and uh as we're working through this, if you've been on a mission strip, I'm going to ask you if you can think of any examples of this uh, without you know, demeaning any of our missionaries, but if you can think of any examples on this continuum. So a C1 church plant would basically be like taking a traditional church from suburban America and trying to plan it in the same way, everything about it, its, its look, its, um, its structure, and and l- take it to let's say an african village among a tribe that needs to be reached with the gospel in other words they can't really plan a church unless they have the americanized version of the church building and the church operations and so on uh, the all the programs that we have um, so so just picture you know an african village with americanized church dressed in western clothing listening to english hymns reading from an English Bible, right? When that's not their language, and yet this is what some missionaries do, and that's the, the extreme. And we don't have any missionaries like this as far as I know, but, but, um, but, but that's the extreme. So C5 would be the other extreme, which is also not helpful, uh, and that would be if you're trying to plant a church in a Muslim culture, let's say, that you continue to use their mosque and their form of praying so they get down on their knees and they're bending down and maybe continue to have the call for prayer that they have, the five times a day type thing. And and so now it's not that we're trying to Americanize uh, their their culture. Instead, we're trying to be exactly like them without, without moving them away from it and moving it toward a biblical model. And I hope you see a problems with both extremes. The first one leads to unnecessary burdening of a new church with extraneous cultural baggage, right? We we force all this cultural baggage on them. The second violates the principles in the book of Hebrews that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation and that Christians should not even appear to return to an inferior covenant, not to mention uh, a false religion. Okay, so just something I I wanted to point out. uh, Have you seen any of this? on any of the churches that you've been in in other cultures, have you seen any 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 of these extremes or have you seen it done well at what we would say a C three type church plant? Paul? Yeah, and I felt like when we went to uh, Blau, where Pastor Conan was, that that it was more um, probably closer to the middle. It wasn't American Americanized version of the the um, the hymns that they were singing. The way that they prayed was different than we are used to praying. Um, some of that was probably borrowed from uh, maybe a Pentecostal type background that some of them had, but but overall it seemed to be that that the church was thriving in a way that that was consistent See, for us we would feel uncomfortable and i think rightfully so if we had their type of cultural music in our services uh because one it doesn't even fit in our culture but two it wouldn't fit in our our christian culture either so i think th- that would be um that would be a problem but but for us to do the same thing to them is also a problem right to take our music and to force it on Onto their culture, now this is a much deeper issue than we have time to, and maybe I've already opened the can of worms, so let me just say that that the goal is not to get them to for their cultural music to match the music that they have in the church or their cultural forms to match what's going on in the church, but we also can't force our American culture onto theirs the The key is here here's here's what a healthy church looks like regardless of the culture. And this goes back to John Calvin who said basically it's two things. Number one, the right preaching of God's Word. right That the Scriptures are being preached, that that the meaning of the text is the meaning of the sermon, and it's not being uh, mishandled. Okay, So the right preaching of the Word. That's a difficult thing to do. That's a th- difficult thing to teach and to, to establish in a place. The second is the right practice of the ordinances. Okay, so... Are we bringing in members properly? How do we bring a member into the church okay what What are the requirements? Okay? They have to take a class. okay, They have to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Do we take all believers into membership? What else do they need? Baptism, and I think our constitution also includes an orderly walk. so if someone's for example, is leaving another church being divisive and coming to our church then they may have been saved and baptized they may still be saved and baptized but they're not living a proper life and as soon as we voted them into the church we'd have to vote them out be, uh, you know we'd have to discipline them out of the church so so those are the usually the four things that that we put as a requirement for that so the the right use of the ordinances includes baptism how are we baptizing people? Are we just baptizing anyone? Are we baptizing infants? Are we baptizing anyone who wants to be baptized? No, we're, we're only baptizing those who have a credible profession of faith, and that is really the doorway to getting into membership in our church. Uh, and I think that's historically Baptist principle. All right. And the second thing is the right practice of uh, the Lord's Supper. So this is all under the right practice of the ordinances the lord's supper includes the practice of church discipline right that if if there is a specific sin problem with a member in our church unrepentant sin uh they're not supposed to eat with us we need to we need to fence the table right we need to make sure that we talk to these people and to say listen you know we 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 think that this problem needs to be resolved if 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 you have a problem with your brother you need to go to him and and handle the problem so here's what a healthy church looks like. It's one who has the right preaching of God's word and a right use of the ordinances. So no matter which culture we find, that's what C3 church plant would look like. It's one that has the right preaching of God's word and a right practice of the ordinances. Notice there's no there's no talk about um, cultural baggage and so on. Uh, so how that all applies is going to be different in different cultures. It's going to be it's going to be different than we feel comfortable with in some cases, um, but but uh, just want to give you a little um, a little uh, background on that or a little bit of a, a brief summary of what that is, Paul. Yeah, and, and a negative example of that, a c one example is this uh this guy we ran into that was actually a Pentecostal guy that let us stay at his house right after we got in into africa and um and he was saying that that he goes around to these various places and sets up a huge tent with all the you know the the sound systems and holds like the old American revival type services in order to to reach people and a lot of people have no idea what's going on. It's not something that's done in their culture and and so on. Uh, but we can't ultimately just say, well, we're not going to do it because it's not in their culture. We can't go over this side extreme either because, obviously, churches having a, an established, proper Bible-believing church in a culture is not normal for them either. So so that's why it just requires great uh, discernment as we as we do that. All right, so let's think about why God does missions this way. Uh, why is it that he chooses to ransom men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Anyone have any ideas? Okay, so that's the thing that we've been saying from the very beginning. We looked at several scriptures in, in the first class that this is all about God's glory. It's about God magnifying his own name throughout the world. So it brings glory to God to show mercy to sinners. And here, what we're we're trying to show today is that God is glorified in saving people from every tribe, kindred, and tongue, and people, nation. And the way that he does that is through, and here you, you see on your handout, diversity. He does it through diversity. More uh, Diversity, number one, exalts his glory. Diversity exalts his glory. More praise comes from unity and diversity rather than unity alone. It is it is just more powerful and beautiful when there is great diversity of people, uh, cultural differences, coming together and unifying over one central thing. This is why the world is amazed when they look at a, a properly loving church. They see a church that, wow, you've got people who are rich and poor, old and young, you know, um, all these different spectrums of people within your church, and yet for some reason they're showing love to each other like a family would show love. Now we would expect families to show love; they're family. But but a church? Why would they do that? And That's why God receives great glory uh, through diversity. We we saw this when we went to South America. Um, just how you instantly have in common with people that. Even language is a difference, but you have in common with them this bond that we have in Jesus Christ. And and it's like we've known them for a long time. And the same thing happened in in the Ivory Coast, that you meet people um, who have a common bond in Jesus. And all those other differences that we have don't really matter because we know that that we're on the same path. And we know that we have the same sorts of struggles. We have the same sorts of of, um, successes and so on. So number one, diversity exalts his glory. Number two, diversity demonstrates his universal greatness. God's fame, God's worth increases in the proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. So I, I, whenever I think of this point, I think of Antiques Roadshow. You know, you, you may have something, an object that is of great value to your specific family, a family heirloom. But if you showed that to someone else from a different part of our country or a different part of the world, they don't really care. You know, it's it's nice, it's well it's well made, but it doesn't mean anything to us. But the things that are of the most value on that show and in life are the things that that can show their worth that crosses diverse cultural boundaries. Right? If something is is valued in one culture or one people group, that's one thing. But if it's valued across all the people groups, what does it say about it? Right? So I'm I'm a big sports fan. Soccer. Okay, what does it say about soccer that all the people groups in the world appreciate it? Right? That it's a, it is a great sport. It's very simple. You just need a ball and a couple sticks to be able to make the goal and so on. Um, and it just crosses cultures. That's why there's great value in it. Now, please... You know, I, I'm not trying to be crass in, in relating that to God. But I'm trying to make a point, and that is that when there is diversity, it shows the worth of the object. Um, so maybe uh, maybe a jewel would be a better example. If there's a jewel that's maybe locally known and valued, but not valued in other parts of the world, then then it's not really of that great value. But if you have like a pearl or a diamond that people all over the world would value and and pay lots of money for that shows its value and this is what God is doing he's showing his worth among all the diversity of people number 3 d- diversity crushes ethnocentric pride okay we we have to get away from this idea that that we are god's chosen people in the sense of, of Americans you know that that god loves us so much and he hates the rest of the world I don't think we'd say it like that but 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 there is kind of an air of pride that we tend to have and yet this this idea of diversity helps show us that God is reaching people from all nations and he's trying to show his his grace to them he's pouring out his mercy finally diversity shows that God is uh more worthy than false gods okay there's God is more worthy than false God. God is magnified in leading a diverse group of people rather than a homogenous group. The more diverse the people group, the more they forsake their gods in order to serve the one true and living God. It shows the value of our God. It shows what a great God He is. And that's why in heaven, when this great praise is sung from all these different tribes and people and tongues and nations, it will be a great, it will be a great spectacle to watch and to be a part of. Because God is worthy of the praise of all people, all right any questions comments yeah yeah um, you know god God desires that that all come to repentance that that all men come to repentance, so we um we want to reach those who are not reached. We want to reach those who do have a gospel preaching church but but maybe need more. You know, even in America with the growth of our country in population, you could plant uh dozens if not hundreds of churches every year and still not have a local church for every area of the country because the you know, the cities are expanding. They're gro- going out into the the um into the rural areas and so um we're constantly needing more churches to be planted where people haven't been. All right? Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your grace and salvation. Thank you for continuing to show mercy to us. And and in doing so, you take away all the the arrogance that we can put into our responsibilities and you and you take the credit for yourself. You take the glory in doing it this way for yourself and and we praise you for that. We want to honor you with our lives, and we want to think rightly about missions and about people groups. And, and Lord, I pray that you would call uh, many people for the sake of your work, that you would raise up laborers because the harvest is ready. We pray in Jesus' name.